people want to know your why. You know, why are you passionate about something? What is it that excites you? Why does it keep you up at night? I think people are really attracted to that. And I learned pretty early on that I could use my story of why I wanted to make the film and why I was falling in love with all these female entrepreneurs to really hook people and get them interested. So I definitely, you know, was shouting that from the rooftops. Question. When you envision your future, what does it look like? What projects do you want to complete that would make you feel like your most fulfilled self? Now, do you envision making a living off those projects? Especially if you're in a creative field, you've probably been told that you can't make a living off of the art that you create. Well, today's episode is all about subverting that notion and demonstrating how to be intentional with your art or your craft in order to make a profit. Welcome to the I Make a Living podcast, brought to you by FreshBooks. My guest today is Aaron Bagwell, the blocker and successful documentary filmmaker behind the feature-length films Dreamgirl and Year One. She is on a mission to tell brilliant, engaging, and meaningful stories. And make that money, honey. (laughs) Here's Aaron on how she makes a living. I make a living as a documentary filmmaker blogger, speaker, and I'm also a full-time mom. That sounds like a lot. I relate to a lot of that. Like I see you and I'm also like feeling... You're tired already. Yeah, that's kind of what I want to say. But I mean, you also use your own story and experiences as a catalyst for a lot of the art that you create and a lot of the work that you do, right? Yeah, absolutely. Especially with this last film. The first documentary that I did is called Dream Girl. And it was about ambitious female entrepreneurs in New York City. I featured 10 women who were at all different stages of their business. I um, raised $100,000 on Kickstarter to produce it and was able to kind of quit my day job and really fling myself into being a documentary filmmaker full-time. It took about two years to make the film, and we premiered under the Obama administration at the White House, which was one of the greatest honors in my life. I like to tell people we were the first film produced by all women to premiere at the White House. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's uh, the story I'm sticking to. It's all about the spin, girl. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So as you were on this journey with these women, were there certain things that emerged that surprised you or certain themes that came up that really begged for you to pay attention to them? Yeah, I think money is a huge one. You know, whether I was in New York City or, you know, in a village in Tajikistan, I mean, women wanted to figure out how to raise capital. Less than 3% of venture capital dollars go to women. So finding the money to get an idea off the ground can be really, really difficult. And I found that to be absolutely a universal theme. And then this is kind of more subconscious, but just being taken seriously. I spoke to women who were experts in their craft for you know decades who would sit at boardrooms have to prove themselves constantly and it's it's really really difficult i think still for women to be in that space especially women of color yeah i think wanting to be seen as an expert you know wanting to be taken seriously i think that's still a big one well since you brought up money <laughs> you also launched a successful kickstarter campaign and you raised over $100,000 in funding over 30 days. That is no small feat. And I'm sure there are a lot of folks listening right now who have their dream idea and maybe have tried some of the crowdsource funding options before and failed. I know a lot of folks that have 
have tried it and failed miserably at it. What do you think was unique about the way that you approached your Kickstarter campaign or what you included in your story that got so many people motivated around your mission? Well, I had a really fabulous video. I I spent a lot of money and I produced a really gorgeous video because I wanted people to look at it like a trailer. I wanted them to see it as a glimpse of what the film would look like, you know, so from color correction to audio mixing to hiring a crew to produce it, you know, I spent a lot of money of my own money kind of investing in what it's going to look like, because if you're investing in a documentary or a film, you want it to look, you know, like a film. And then the other thing I will say is you brought up such a good point about sharing your story. You know, people want to know your why. You know, why are you passionate about something? What is it that excites you? Why does it keep you up at night? I think people are really attracted to that. And I learned pretty early on that I could use my story of why I wanted to make the film and why I was falling in love with all these female entrepreneurs to really hook people and get them interested. So I definitely, you know, was shouting that from the rooftops. Why did you want to make the film, Erin? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. Um, To be honest, I was being sexually harassed at my job. And at the same time, I had started a a really small, it doesn't exist anymore, feminist storytelling blog where I think out of my desperation for wanting to hear about women's survival stories, I kind of created this safe space where women were just, you know, sharing one page Google Docs with me about like all different experiences, being sexually harassed. different experiences that they'd had and and all sorts of things. And through that, I got linked into like an entrepreneurship community and people were calling me a founder because I had started this little, you know, WordPress blog, like, you know, eight years ago. And I was watching these young women who looked like me raise millions of dollars in capital, have employees, start these little small startups, get stuff off the ground and make shit happen. And at the same time, I was like, why am I working for this boss who doesn't see me, isn't paying me what I deserve, and is verbally harassing me? I was starting to see my personality change at work. And I kind of saw this group of entrepreneurs as like my gateway out. Mm. And um, I loved sharing their stories on Feminist Wednesday, but it didn't feel like enough. You know, I wanted to see their lives. I wanted to know what their companies looked like. I wanted like the inside track at like how you become an entrepreneur. So that was the film I made. So you had a background. You you had an education in media. Yes, in filmmaking. In filmmaking. So at the time, you were doing something outside of your your dream job. Correct. Yeah, I was I was in digital media still, but you know, not working on anything I was passionate about. So in a way it sounds like this was sort of a kick in the pants for you to also pursue the the big dream that you had? Oh, for sure. I think it's like one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me <laughs> is kind of getting that energy and getting that, you know, inspiration to, to take my life seriously, you know, to take what I'm going to do and put out into the world. You know, I remember sitting at a bar with my, you know, partner, who's now my husband, and being like, you know, this is going to be my year. Like, I'm going to quit this job. I'm going to start over. Like, I feel like I really threw a lot of intention in in wanting things to get better and wanting to do better. How did that conversation go when you were like, I'm going to quit my job and make a documentary film? Like, did you need... (laughs) Did you need to have the Kickstarter funding to give you the confidence to actually leave and know that you could support yourself and that this was worth pursuing? Or how, how did that conversation unfold? 
It's such a great question. And there's there were so many conversations that led to that conversation, right? I'm not independently wealthy. You know, my partner isn't either. So we really had to figure out the finances of like, how do you get from A to B? And to be honest, in the beginning, we weren't really sure what was going to happen or if I was going to do a crowdfunding or how any of this was going to come together. But um, I was very lucky. I have another friend who's a serial entrepreneur and he was starting a company. And I said, he actually wanted to hire my husband. And I said, hire me. I'll do all your design. You know, we'll make sure it's Sal approved, my husband approved and let me quit my job. Give me the kind of in-between I need to get to whatever the next thing is. So I worked for my friend Mark for maybe a month or two before, you know, the Kickstarter stuff came together. And and then once we were fully funded on the Kickstarter, I paid myself and was able to work full-time on Dream Girl. That's awesome. Were you thinking at that point, this is my new career path? Were you thinking of it? You mentioned like being seen as a founder really changed your perception of what you were doing with the blog at that point. So did you at this point start to look at it as a business or as the new career you were stepping into? I mean, I've wanted to be a filmmaker since I was like 16 years old. Like this has always been the path um, and the thing that I've wanted to embody. But I don't think it was until I met my production partner, Komal Minhas, that I really thought about the business of film. And that I thought about, you know, what we were going to do after the film was out. You know, how are we going to make money? I think in the beginning, my brain was all on like, how do we make this thing? And then kind of secondarily, how do we sell it? So how do you sell it? Nobody really goes into documentary filmmaking going, I'm going to strike it rich here. But oh, I oh I fully intended to strike her rich. I was I was ready to make some big bucks, um, and we did very well. You know, our first year we we made over a hundred thousand dollars in in sales, and we had a team of two full time people, and we were both traveling and speaking. So the cool thing about doing the Kickstarter was that it gave us this incredible community of two thousand people who wanted to see the film when it came out. And so instead of going to festivals and doing a more traditional route, we decided to do these screening events where hosts could buy a screening package and get a license to the film. They could host their own event. They could make as much money as they want by selling tickets, getting sponsors. So we just charged them a flat fee and mailed them a DVD. And then Komal and I would, would do speaking events and charge more to do a Q&A after the film. So we were able to make money and be sustainable probably for a solid year off of that. Whoa, hold on. Did you just hear Erin low-key upend every documentary filmmaker stereotype? She takes a very intentional approach to creative entrepreneurship. Many artists fund their art through side projects and make their art mostly for the sake of self-expression. However, Erin proves that self-expression can sustain more than just a creative impulse. It can sustain a comfortable lifestyle. Here's how she designed a system to generate revenue around her film. Well, I think one of the really important things for any artist or any entrepreneur is listening to your audience. You know, what are they asking of you? What do they want from you? And a lot of our audience was women who had networking events, who held organizations, were the head of organizations, and they really wanted to create spaces for connection. And so really, we were offering them a value of, you know, if you host this organization, you're already meeting once a month. What a great thing to like switch it up and do a film screening. And so that was really great. And then we also had a group of influencers and entrepreneurs who are really big fans of the film. And they'd often use it to promote like their book 
So you could kind of use the film almost as like a secret self-promotion tool. So once we kind of started paying attention to who our audience was, it became easier and easier to figure out, okay, this is the language. This is how much we should charge. This is what we're going to offer in our screenings package. Like these are the questions they might want to talk about. I think it was kind of rough at first. Once you launch, you're not really sure what you're doing. But I think the more information as we're collecting and understanding and just getting on the phone with people. We had so many people come in and out of the office who just wanted to say hi, who were Kickstarter backers. And I was like, let them in. Like, let's see, who are these people? You know, what are they interested in? That's so great. You know, what can we do? So I think having that open communication with your customers is everything. Yes. And you definitely did create some meaningful conversations and catch the eye of some important folks. Little, little lady named Oprah named you <laughs> as one of the Super Soul 100. Talk to us about that experience. Well, Oprah's the greatest. And um, I still pinch myself when I think about being part of her Super Soul 100. She named me and Komal on her list. And Mary, she touched my, my left arm on my tattoo. She was, she was asking questions about the snake and the symbolism. And I totally blacked out. I remember nothing. But actually, I did interrupt a conversation she was having with Ava DuVernay so that I could tell Ava how much her South by Southwest keynote meant to me and how it steered the creative of our film. Um, so that was nice. also another highlight. Wow. But we got a lot of great energy and and people who are interested in sharing the film and making sure that people watch it. And if people are interested now, um, Dream Girls on YouTube for free. So they can Google it and find it and, and watch it themselves. Nice. I, I hope everyone will check that out and also see the other learnings you had from female entrepreneurs but I want to go back now to your journey as an entrepreneur, as a creative. As this uh, cycle was sort of ending, you found out that you were pregnant. I'm a mom, so I know how that affects your plans. But how did you decide to document this journey as your next project versus just as a keepsake for you and your daughter? I had kind of thought a lot about filming perhaps the documentary about motherhood in some capacity. Um, I was really interested in, you know, how people, how people mother, how they manage being parents, how it works, what it looks like. And then when I became a mother myself, I actually had really debilitating postpartum depression and it became, it kind of, you know, changed the lens of how I viewed my motherhood narrative and also the media that I viewed, you know, we don't really get to see a lot of really great authentic stories about what it means to become a parent. And I felt really deeply called to kind of share and document and almost like journal through having a videographer with me and, and you know, sharing all these truths and vulnerabilities about what I was experiencing. And so I decided to seriously document it, to raise capital, to build a team around me to create this new documentary about the first year of motherhood. And it became a really therapeutic way for me to heal my postpartum depression. And I felt like, felt like there was more I wanted to share, honestly. And I felt really starved for conversations and content and characters who were telling honest stories about motherhood. I felt know, eager about pursuing the conversation. And then more than that, pursuing, like, how do I heal from this? You know, how do I give myself grace? And I think every time I go to the footage to edit, because I'm insane and I also edited the movie, 
you know, I was able to see myself at like one week or three months and go, of course, I didn't know what I was doing. Of course, that was crazy. You know, of course, I was sleep deprived. So it was changing the relationship of how I viewed my mothering. And it was allowing me to give myself more compassion. And I was like, this is good. Whatever's happening here, you know, in this editing room feels good. Like, I feel like I'm creating more space to be less hard on myself. It's very interesting to look at yourself sort of as the subject of the the thing that you're creating as well. And to be able to have that perspective and those realizations. And you'll find as you go along, you don't remember things as clearly as you thought you might. Like in those moments that seem so important at the time, when you look back at them, you realize, oh my gosh, I really was out of my mind. Uh, but <laughs> but I'm curious because you are going into so many of these really challenging moments for yourself and challenging subjects for other women. Are there things that you hope people see from your journey? Are there things that when you continue to look at it, make you cringe or make you concerned about putting it all out there? I want women and mothers, new mothers especially, to feel seen. You know, I didn't like being a mother for like the first six months. The first lines in the film are, you know, this job was so hard, I thought maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I didn't have what it takes to be a mother. And I I guess I want new moms to feel that motherhood is not a dress that you put on and it slips on and it fits you perfectly like a glove. It has to be altered. It has to be tailored. Sometimes it's something you grow into and that's fine. I have a beautiful relationship with my daughter. I love her to death. She's the greatest thing that ever happened to me, but the beginning sucked. And I think we don't hear enough stories about that. I also say in the film, you know, with everybody telling me to enjoy every minute, it made me feel like I was already failing. And I think if you have that beautiful honeymoon experience, it's incredible, but it doesn't have to be that way. We are complex humans with complex emotions and your experience can manifest however it wants. And so I think especially in the beginning, I want new parents and new mothers to know they're not alone in these feelings. And then also if they're feeling some of the darker ideations, you know, to get help. I don't know. I'm just, I think as an artist, I'm just always happy to be able to have the opportunity to put something out there and try not to think too much about kind of the, the irking, cringeworthy moments. I want to talk about the intersection between these two films, between Dream Girl and Year One, because I see that there are a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly female entrepreneurs, who are carrying the weight of their business, but then want to also have a family and feel this like rush to just get back into it, put the baby down, forget about breastfeeding, forget about your sleep deprivation. And just, you got to make it work. And I find, especially for solopreneurs, it's really hard to gauge that. How much time do you spend building this family? And how much time Mm -hmm. do you spend building your business? And then where's the you in that? Like, where's the space for you to focus on your mental health and recover um, without the pressure of always needing to be pushing one of these one of these balls up the hill? I mean, I think it's a complicated question, right? And I think everybody's situation and everybody's level of support is so different. You know, I wish there was like a a great answer to kind of understanding and grappling with these things. I think for me and my experience, it's just been about A, kind of allowing my identity to be fully shattered in the beginning, to surrender to 
not having a moment to focus on myself, to surrender to the fact that my emails weren't getting answered and my laundry will never get put away. (laughs) And then, you know, as those things kind of creep back and as you get that time back, really having to fight to make space for yourself. And I think part of it too, one of my parenting mantras and that I try to think about a lot is, you know, what is the model that I'm giving my little girl? What do I want her to see from me? And I want her to see the best of me. And and how do I do that? And and work is a, a huge part of the way I express my identity and my passion. And, you know, for me to be the best mother I can be, that has to be integrated. So it's challenging. It's something that I'm sure will continue to be challenging as she gets older and as I continue to to grow and, you know, work on my career. So yeah, it's tough. Do you have any advice for us as your kids have gotten older and you've had more space? And Well, I think I would have, I would have given myself more time. I mean, it's kind of like what you were saying at the beginning that needing to have the reason to leave. Hmm. I, in some ways, look at the birth of my daughter as the reason for the shift in my career from being a corporate media executive to then being an independent content creator and also having a business with dating coaching. Like all of that kind of came at once because I never thought I would be the one that couldn't juggle it all, but nothing felt right in that first year. The pandemic didn't do gender equity initiatives any favors. If you look at data from the McKinsey Institute for Black Economic Mobility, the pandemic dealt a serious blow to women in the workforce, especially for working mothers with children under the age of 10. I feel very seen. When asked the reason for leaving the workforce or downshifting their career, women reported higher demands on their time spent on household responsibilities since the pandemic began. Will someone please tell me how to build an empire when I have a sink full of dishes and tons of homework to check for my kids? But seriously, I have been there. And I know it may be hard to hear advice and implement changes when you're in the moment. I remember having to turn down a TV gig once because I didn't have a babysitter and it crushed me, especially when I realized that had I asked for help, several of my friends said they would have stepped up if they knew that I needed them. If you're a working parent, lean on your community and the people who love you. And don't be too proud to take advantage of government programs, grants, or workplace initiatives because they exist to bridge you through your challenging times. And most importantly, take care of yourself. You know the saying, put your own oxygen mask on first. But seriously, it is hard to catch your breath as a working parent. Take some space from it all when your mind and your body tell you that you need it. There may be entrepreneurs listening who aren't parents or can't quite relate to that experience, but can relate to what you said about mental health and, um, you know, having some of those low points. And it's especially an issue in entrepreneurship when our entire livelihood is based on the performance of our business at some times. What message would you have for those entrepreneurs who feel like they might be struggling with mental health and need some help? I would say, you know, get a therapist. Um, I'm a New Yorker. I think everybody should have a therapist. Having professional help to guide you and to course correct some thoughts and to just kind of be a safe place for you to vent. 
I remember, especially when starting my business, I was like, I just need an hour where I can say all the things that are going wrong so I don't drive my husband insane. I think he was so sick of me talking about my business mm-hmm. <laughs> that I needed like to pay someone to receive this information. You know, I think we've learned now with the pandemic that, you know, being outside, being in sunshine, being in nature, kind of giving ourselves permissions, I call it like a 10-minute vacation. Like, what can you do for yourself to recharge? You know, we haven't been able to do the things that we once loved. How can we build that into our day-to-day existence? You know, whether it's reading a book for 10 minutes, listening to a podcast that makes us laugh. I'm really invested in every day trying to take care of myself and be kind to myself. And then the other thing that changed my life is the idea that we are not our thoughts. I think especially when you're dealing with really heavy depression and suicidal thoughts, to be able to separate yourself from kind of that nagging voice, you know, we all have that negative self-critic, you know, the trauma of generations we carry within us. And to be able to say, that's not me. That's not for me right now. Elizabeth Gilbert has this great saying about fear, which is, you know, it can sit in the car, but it can't drive the radio. And I feel like I've continually had to kind of have this conversation with my depression that's like, listen, you can be here and you can be in the car, but you're not driving, you're not making any major map decisions, and kind of coping with and allowing that to exist and to know that's not who I am at my core um, is really powerful. Take a page out of Aaron's book and allow yourself some space for your mental health. We tie too much of our worth to money and our job. But now, more than ever, it's important to step back and gain some perspective. You are worth more than the money you make. Think about that. Here's what we learned from Aaron today. Your dream project can be profitable if you take an intentional approach to your marketing strategy. Everyone is struggling with something. Look for resources and communities that will help alleviate the pressure that you're feeling every day. Your story is important. Don't just live it, share it. Get more information on Aaron's latest documentary, Year One, at watchyearone.com. Also, you can follow her on Instagram at Aaron.bagwell. The I Make a Living podcast is brought to you by FreshBooks. Balancing your books, client relationships, and business isn't easy. FreshBooks gives you the info and time you need to focus on your big picture, your team, your business, maybe your kids, and of course, your clients. Right now, you can go to freshbooks.com slash podcast and take advantage of an exclusive offer that's just for our show listeners. And while you're at it, check out all the resources that we make available to you through our show notes. Our executive producer is Francisco Arzmendi. Editorial and content producer is Leo Shell Villanueva. Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. And I am Damona Hoffman, producer and host. You can follow me at Damona Hoffman and FreshBooks at FreshBooks on all of the social platforms for more tips, tools, and resources, because it's your business. We'll be back with a Nerdisode on Thursday.